On the dark side of the internet, just beyond the zip files filled with leaked photos and passwords, amongst the promotions for illicit drugs and weapons, there lies an even more disturbing region of the web that we don't like to talk about. I'm Daniel Dennis-Jones, and today on Radio Berkman, we talk to a researcher who studies how we try to prevent human trafficking and child exploitation online. The International Labor Organization estimates that between forced labor and the commercial sex trade, more than 20 million men, women, and children become the cargo of human traffickers around the world. The web plays a huge role in keeping these industries alive. There's an almost unlimited supply of platforms, and it's easy to remain anonymous from behind a screen and a keyboard. But for all the illegal activity perpetrated by deep web deals and webcams, technology is also a huge part in combating child exploitation and human trafficking. Police can use IP addresses and emails to track perps, and companies like Facebook and Microsoft are developing software to automatically identify pornography and keep sites cleaner. But the web is becoming more and more a part of growing up. According to a Pew study, 93% of 12 to 17-year-olds use the internet, probably no surprise to anyone out there who has kids, and this has the potential to change the way software developers, police, and NGOs talk about youth and child exploitation online. That's according to Matali Takor, a PhD student in MIT's History, Anthropology, and Science, Technology, and Society program, who studies the ways that we police and prevent child exploitation and human trafficking. Takor visited the Berkman Center last week and spoke with Radio Berkman producer Elizabeth Gillis about her research, which often critiques the methods and technology we use to fight these issues. This is Elizabeth Gillis. I'm here with Matali Takor. I guess to start off with, what what specifically are you asking with this research? So I, I came into grad school wanting to do a research project around sex workers' rights and communication. And it's changed a lot over the last few years. But really implicit in the conversation around sex work is how the framing of human trafficking as a problem has become more and more centralized, right? So I started thinking about how I could frame anti-trafficking as this sort of large entity. And so I started looking into what is human trafficking and specifically, who are the people trying to fight human trafficking? And it's bringing together all these really unique people But there was so much lost in how people understood the issue. And that's really where I started getting concerned. It's very difficult to be in the position where I'm critiquing people trying to do good activist work. But I think that's really necessary because my problem with the way that human trafficking and anti-trafficking is sort of shaping up in the U.S. is it is so law enforcement centric and ends up reinforcing some of the same problems of marginalization, policing and difference that have always been issues. And it fails to address larger issues of structural poverty and structural violence and immigration policies in the U.S. that are actually, I think, creating the issues of trafficking and exploitation these people should be concerned with. Yeah. So so what you're saying then is that you kind of started going into this thinking, I want to better understand human trafficking. And now your focus is more on efforts to prevent trafficking and kind of critiquing those. Well, and then it takes a spin. So I, I, uh, I presented my first year in grad school at MIT. I was asked to present at a women's and gender studies class just on some of my research from undergrad on sex workers. And Dana Boyd from Microsoft Research was one of my co-panelists. And so we met at this at this event, at this talk. She was talking about her research on youth and media and sexuality. And we started talking after the event. And she was also interested in human trafficking for sort of the same reasons that I was, but really 
coming at it from a different angle, right? So prior to that meeting, I mean, how had you been approaching the technological side of it? The fact that human trafficking does happen in a large part on the internet these days. My, my undergrad research was actually, I went to Stanford for my undergrad and I majored in feminist studies and anthropology. And my undergrad thesis was on sex workers' use of cell phones um, in India as a way of thinking of themselves as entrepreneurs and actually conducting their business and as a way of escaping policing um, and surveillance. Right. So that was, I mean, that's a little bit different than what you're looking at now because that was, I don't know, in the case of your paper, if if they were people who had chosen to do that, so they weren't trafficked. What led you to where you are now, where you're looking at specifically human trafficking? Because, because what I observed is that the way that people were talking about sex workers was always defined by human trafficking or by HIV. AIDS, right? And especially in India at that time, and still now, um, that's the dominant two discourses that shape how we think about sex work, right? Both visions of sort of harm and disease and violence, and that, that there's a possibility for something outside of that, right? But that's where I started getting really interested in what what is the anti-trafficking industry and what are they really trying to do? Is it anti-prostitution, ultimately? Going from that to the research I do now, which is on child exploitation, which is another it's another com- component being added into that because then there's a question of does a child can a child give consent mm-hmm. and that was something you were talking about before mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um could you kind of explain i mean what you're learning in that uh, what what you've seen what kind of research is out there it is very difficult to study and and do research on young people <laughs> and i think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done on reconceptualizing children and childhood and young people in digital spaces um, in terms of healthy sexuality and a harm reduction model. I wanted to look at the ways that people in positions of power and decision-making power frame children without letting children speak for themselves. So how do police and bureaucrats and activists also all think about children and speak for children and protect children in ways that maybe it might actually be kind of problematic? Mm -hmm. And how so? Could Could you explain, you know, what is the problem there? Or give some specific examples. Mm-hmm. I think we're going towards a model where there's a lot of technophobia and, and techno panics around young people's use of the internet. So an example that I often give is the Malaysian government's policy around child protection, which has generally veered towards censoring any websites containing sexuality or sexual information, which is hugely problematic, right? I mean, how to let alone having, um, you know, sex education or reproductive health education present. But if, if young people can't access, when I was a teenager, if I hadn't been able to access sex ed online, you know, and I grew up in Maryland, which I think has more comprehensive sex ed programming than other states. But if I hadn't had access to that stuff, I don't know where I would be, right? And I think that that's what it means to start thinking about children as people with rights and with the ability to exert agency, right? If young people have access to the internet, they should be able to access certain types of information or every type of information, right? So what I find problematic with the current model is that it's not really oriented towards safety. It's kind of fear-driven. Right, interesting. When you were growing up, when I was growing up too, the internet was there and it was there as a resource for us as children. But, you know, just generation before... It wasn't. So does the policy have to especially adapt because the internet's here now? I mean, does that, how does that play into revisiting what these policies say and how they talk about children? Yes and no, right? Because 
access to the internet or like online space is so ubiquitous now that I don't think you can really make a distinction between offline and online in most places, but also that a lot of the policies today are still based on much older ideas of sex education and access to information and how we think of young people, right? And so if you have a fear-based model of sexuality and sex ed, then that's just going to get replicated with internet policy. What I don't really see is, you know, when there's concerns around internet governance, net neutrality, where do children come in there, right? And so keeping young people and young people's rights central to that conversation, I think, is really important. It's going to continue to be important. Right. Another interesting point of discussion that came up um, when you were just speaking here at the Berkman Center was different ways of policing child exploitation and trafficking. Could you kind of explain what these other models are? I guess you could call them models. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in, I mean, what are the police? What does it mean to think about the police when, it, when you're thinking about issues of child exploitation and, and the rise of a um, global policing, right? Interpol and Europol and sort of these larger official policing agencies, but also NGOs and companies engaging in policing work themselves. So I mentioned this a little in my talk to the NGO that has developed a avatar for doing a sting operation to find people talking to young people on chat on chat rooms right and so this avatar is a ch- supposedly a child and you can look that up it's called the sweetie campaign and then i'm also looking at companies like microsoft and facebook that do their own in-house anti-exploitation work to find images of child pornography you could call it cleanup corporate responsibility or policing right um, so i'm interested in these sort of blurred lines between who does policing work and then on top of that you have something like The Amber Alert is a really good example of community policing, right? The Amber Alert's now on almost everyone's iPhone. And so that engages the community in policing and trying to find young people. So are these different types of policing that are not official problematic? I don't know. I don't know if it's up to me to make that kind of normative claim and whether it's good or bad. But I do think that we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves when we have lots of different groups engaging in policing work. And I don't think that the way that law enforcement is currently set up, it is set up to deal with lots of other agencies and groups also engaging in policing work. Right. And when you say that the police aren't really ready to kind of like work with these other groups who are also doing policing, in what ways aren't they ready? Could you give some specific examples? I don't know if that's the right phrasing, if they're ready. Because I think different types of law enforcement have been doing investigations on missing children for a long time. I mean, an example that I like to give is the Dutch police and how they've nationalized, created a child exploitation center, and also now hired computer scientists, researchers, and psychologists as part of their team. So there's a shift happening internally with the way that child exploitation issues are dealt with. There's also a shift where you go to child protection law enforcement conferences that are now sponsored by Facebook or Microsoft, right? And so you have this twisting together of companies influencing in very financial ways how this conversation is going. And I, don't, I mean, and I don't know. So I don't know if it's fair to say they're not ready, but I'm just, I always get, I think, a little hesitant when you have something like corporate money involved in the direction in which policing is going. And then what is the role of NGOs? I mean, is there a way to say that generally, or does it really depend on the NGO? Yeah, it depends on the NGO. There's a lot of different types. Um, So the project I did at Microsoft Research, we were looking at the ways that different on-the-ground shelters and other survivors' rights organizations were thinking about issues of trafficking, and they have very different models. So there are some that literally have shelters for women who are survivors of trafficking or exploitation. There are some that uh, have a harm reduction model. HIPS DC is a very famous one that 
uh, gives out condoms and needles and sort of promotes healthy sex and harm reduction instead of actually trying to save women or save people. I think it's an interesting model and a good one that sort of is a lot more inclusive and works closely with local sex workers in enacting their anti-trafficking work, which not every organization does. And a counterexample to that would be something like Project Rose in Phoenix, which works with the police on arresting sex workers who they claim are actually victims of trafficking or are soliciting, or, you're right, I mean, and criminalizes sex work. So you have sort of two different models of how trafficking is dealt with by NGOs. There's a lot in between as well. For that first project that you were talking about, when it comes to trafficking, what exactly are they doing to, I guess, stop that? Because that's not the same as sex work. It's different for somebody to opt into that. No, somebody, oh, it's yeah. definitely. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to imply that. I think HIPS, I don't want to speak for HIPS, but I think an organization like that is trying to not take a stance on issues of trafficking necessarily. They're not going to work with the police unless necessary. Recognizing that most people who are doing sex work of their own choice kind of fear the police, um, especially in a place like D.C. where it's not legal, right? And they hope that I think in setting up that kind of model that they might actually be a safer space for people to come to if they do have issues, if they're being exploited, if they're being... There's a, there's a lot of organizations like that. I don't want to fixate on just this one. And then it might seem kind of obvious what's problematic with criminalizing sex work when you're grouping in people who are victims of human trafficking. I think it, it really does injustice to the people who choose to engage in sex work for a variety of reasons and and actually could be huge allies in fighting exploitation and trafficking. I think when you, when you assume that anybody who's in, engaged in sex work must be a victim of violence, you don't allow them to speak for themselves. Right? I, mean, and I'm, I mean, and even the way that I'm saying that, I sound like I'm speaking for somebody, right? But, but sex workers are not part of the drafting process of these protocols and these laws and these acts. But aren't these the kind of people that are most closely seeing and understanding how this world works, Right and be able to distinguish between exploitation versus choice, right? I think it's it's an attitude towards sexuality and sexual violence in general. I mean, sex, anti-sexual violence activists, when they talk about rape culture, right, and this sort of model of, like, well, girls shouldn't go outside in short skirts or do this at a party or get drunk at a party because then they will get raped, right? That's hugely problematic because that then lays the blame upon that person to put themselves in a risky situation rather than the culture at large. And I think that's kind of what's happening with sex workers' rights organizations doing anti-trafficking work, that it's not about the individual person who engages in risky behavior. It's about a larger culture. Why do we have issues like trafficking and exploitation in the first place? Because we have messed up immigration policies. We have messed up labor laws. Right. We have huge structural poverty and inequality and people are forced to make certain choices for their lives. And then maybe there are bad situations that arise and you have people who are going to always exploit and enact violence upon people. Yeah, it's about not victim blaming, basically. And I think you see, still see that so much. I mean, it sounds maybe it sounds so obvious, but we still we see that with the ways that policies around sex trafficking and sexual violence are still framed. Right. Right. Of course, in our talk right now and the discussion earlier, there's so many different issues, different components to what you're researching. Where are you looking next? What areas do you kind of want to dive into and really dig up some solid research and solid information? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, so I'm still, I'm still writing the dissertation, and I think that I would like the dissertation to focus on issues of policing and technology design. So I've talked about policing a lot. But I'm also interested in the designers and people who are producing new software to find missing children, to find child pornography, 
um, child abuse images. And so how did they design this kind of software? What does it mean for computer scientists who might have previously done the kind of research that's funded by DARPA to now be doing work on child exploitation, right? So how do they talk about the work that they're doing? Um, so I think that the design element is definitely very interesting for me. So while children and young people, are, I think, are at the center of the analysis, I think I want to keep the focus and the light sort of on the people doing the decision making just to see what exactly is going on there. What sort of assumptions do designers have when they're trying to create image recognition software that can detect a young nude body on a certain server. And I mean, let's not kid ourselves. I think that that kind of image recognition software can be used for all kinds of surveillance purposes. There's a lot of research to be done there in the way that surveillance is being conducted and and done and and researched. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. And in good and bad ways because if the focus is going to be on finding children as opposed to just finding the guys who are trying to find children, mm-hmm. that's probably a good thing, but there's also the bad part, which you were talking about with surveillance. And and I think a lot of people are concerned with that, right? I mean, because of because of Snowden and because of all, or that kind of conversation, we're thinking a lot about facial recognition and we're thinking about the FBI's next generation ID program. And I mean, we, we are all, I think, in a way, very familiar with facial recognition and any Facebook user is familiar with facial recognition. And not to paint things in a very dystopic way, but I'm interested in thinking about the role of surveillance and community surveillance in ending child exploitation. Is this is this a good or bad thing? Is it fair to even make a normative statement like that about something being good or bad? Or is that just the way that things are? So I don't know how far you are into this research, but what exists out there now as far as software designed to find missing children that's being used what what is out there like mm-hmm. facial recognition mm-hmm. software one of the most famous ones is called photo dna photo dna have you heard of it yeah. oh, photo dna was developed by a dartmouth computer science professor working in partnership with microsoft and it ended up donating it um, to the national center for missing and exploited children NICMEC, as well as facebook twitter now uses it a number of different companies use it um, and it's very simple image recognition, image detection software that trawls through company servers and checks if, you know, or, you know, for example, a Facebook page that might have images of child pornography and matches them against a database of missing children, right? So NICMEC is a clearinghouse that has a database of missing children, children that have been reported missing. Those that have been missing for some time, they apply age progression techniques to sort of right, age a face. And it tries to match to see if any of the found recent images of child abuse or child pornography match missing children. And then since then, there's been a lot of developments internally. I know Facebook does its own research on just sort of enhancing this kind of image recognition and making it more accurate. They're interested in questions of can we detect age, right? Because there, maybe there's false reports of you know an adult body, but it's actually... Um, it's actually a child or vice versa. Can you detect race or sort of account for variations in race, um, gender, right? So sort of making it a little bit more sophisticated. So that image detection software is sort of the, I think, most predominant model for these larger corporations. The exact process by which that works is still a little cloudy. Right. And that like, how do you see your research contributing to the body of research that already is out there? Yeah. So I, I think really m- merging these anthropological, feminist anthropological studies of human trafficking and anti-trafficking with conversations around children and sexuality, but also keeping this issue of technology design at the core, right? And that's what it means to do STS, science and technology studies work, with a sort of a feminist lens, right? 
can we look at people in positions of power understand what motivates them to do certain things i mean that's a very feminist project actually right to think about questions of race gender privilege in the way that technologies are designed technology is not neutral it never is right and so software is never neutral and i think that's where i'm sort of trying to come in there bring a sort of much needed i hope sts lens to the conversation around trafficking and children and ending exploitation right well thank you so much yeah thanks for having me Madali Tucker is a PhD student in MIT's History, Anthropology, and Science, Technology, and Society program. She stopped by Berkman to discuss her research on ways we police and prevent child exploitation and human trafficking. You can find out more about her work in our show notes at cyber.law.harvard.edu. This week's episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Gillis, with oversight by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 